You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. That we'll be looking at a lot of the scriptures. Let me start with just a few questions for you to just ponder. You don't have to answer out loud, but just to, for, to get us thinking about the text that's going to be in front of us is, would your life be better if you had more money? Yeah, right? Would your life be worse if you had less money? What does the world say? The world says, of course, you need more things. You need more money in order to be happy. Your life would be better. What does the gospel say? What would the gospel say about resources and money and where we sort of rank on the scale of poor to rich? What about your spiritual life? Would your spiritual life be enriched if you had more money? Would your spiritual life be hindered if you had less money? What about generosity? Would your spiritual life increase, your trust in the Lord increase, your dependence upon Him, your spiritual disciplines increase with greater generosity? Or maybe do you need to dial it back a little bit for the sake of your soul? What would the gospel say? What we'll find today is that a changed relationship with God through Jesus also changes our relationship to how we view money and where we rank in the world of prosperity. And also, it changes our relationship to how we view ourselves. If we thought about it, we think a lot about our own opinion of ourselves, our own identity by what we have or don't have. We define so much of what we think of ourselves by our own prosperity, what we have, we don't have, particularly in relation to others. Whether we're rich or poor in our own minds has a lot to do with the physical circumstances that we're in. And a relationship with God, a changed relationship with God changes, rearranges, flips upside down our understanding of riches, true riches, and our view of ourself and how we rank. James 1, 9 through 11 is our text today. Let me just read it for us. It says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I'm going to pray for us. God, we pray that as we come to this um, section of Scripture, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have to teach us. Lord, challenge some assumptions that we might have that, uh, that maybe are not in alignment with your word. Pray that you would peel our fingers off of our desire to control our position in the world, to control what other people think of ourselves. God, help us even to peel our fingers off our ability to define our own selves, our own value, our own position, our own identity. Lord, help us to be rightly related to you, and in that, to rightly relate to the things of this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to just title our message today, A True View of Yourself, because that's really what this is at. Let the lowly man view himself this way in his exaltation. Let the rich man in his humiliation. So this is all about how our status in life can lie to us about where we really stand in terms of ultimate spiritual things. James has already talked to us a lot about trials, that trials in life, actually we should take, the gospel tells us that we should take a reverse, an unnatural view of our trials, that trials are not just to be avoided at all costs, but actually trials are God's means of giving us grace and dependence upon Him. It's how He perfects us, how He cleanses us of sin, and helps, how He helps us to see what's really true, what's really real. And that in our trials, we call out to God for wisdom, and then He gives it. He gives supernatural wisdom. And so trials are not always a bad thing. They work for our good. 
And wisdom, the true wisdom that we need, doesn't come from the world, but comes from God. And it comes to those who ask in faith without doubting. So that's the context here. And so now he transitions here into what seems like a new topic, but it is connected. And it's a topic he's going to come again and again, which is how do we relate to money? How do we relate to rich and poor? So a true view of yourself, what we see in verse 9, is that there is a richness, the richness of the lowly. The lowly, and this is speaking of financially because the contrast is between lowly and rich. So those who are lowly by the world's standards should rejoice in their richness, the true riches that they have in Christ. At the same time, verses 10 and 11 tells us that those that find themselves in the rich category in this world should exult in their humiliation. What a weird way to say that, humiliation. We all, none of us want to be humiliated, but their humble position, the lowliness of the rich. So those are kind of the two points that we're going to look at today, the richness of the lowly and the lowliness of the rich. So let's start with the richness of the lowly. Just very one quick little sentence, very small, very straightforward. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is actually an imperative. Justin made sure that I noticed this at our elder meeting on Thursday, and he's right. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is not just an invitation to consider this. This is a command that if you're sort of on the lower end of the scale socially, you are required, you are commanded to look to, to use your lowly state to look to the riches that you have in Christ. This is your requirement. This is how you give glory to God in the world is because you do the exact opposite of what a carnal person would do. You're filled with the Spirit. And so something about your lowly position and then you exulting in your lowliness, in your exaltation, even as lowly in this world, gives witness to the power of the gospel. The lowly brother is referring to someone who's materially, socially, or economically on, the, in, on poverty, in poverty. On the lower end of the scale, materially, socially, economically. The word boast therein means glory in, celebrate, brag about, rejoice, brag about your high position. This seems so counterintuitive. Because in this world, if you've got a rich person that walks into the room and a poor person that walks into the room, the natural inclination is for the poor person to feel humiliated and for the rich person to, to feel exalted. He's like, no, the gospel actually causes us to view things the exact opposite way. The poor person comes in going, I actually have tremendous freedom to trust and worship the Lord. And the rich person comes in and goes, I actually have many hindrances to my spiritual life. And so I feel my humility, the temporariness of my position. So we're to leverage, both rich and poor, to leverage our physical circumstances in such a way to build ourselves up spiritually, to build one another up one another one another up spiritually, and to glorify God. His exaltation means there that he's a boast in his exaltation. Literally, it means high position, his high status, how advantaged he is, even in his low position. So counterintuitive. It's almost like if we were to go back to James verse, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse, James identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those that are lowly in this world already feel the servantness of that word, right? They already feel like they're below everybody else. James, James identifies with that. But what's glorious about it is that you're a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's like the lowly who already understands servanthood. Like there's something about his spiritual life that already lends itself to like this sense of serving others, being below others. But he glories in the fact that he's not just a servant of people. He's not just, he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Lord Jesus Christ puts his name upon me and I serve him. He looks to who his service and master is for. I am not lowly for no reason, for no purpose. The lowly person can say that. We could go into verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. So, in a sense, rejoice when you meet trials. The lowly person recognizes that he has more opportunities to mature spiritually because he faces more trials. I'm going to grow faster spiritually because of the fact that I'm more needy physically. Isn't that odd? There's a famous Christian by the name of Johnny Erickson Tata. Have you heard of her? Johnny Erickson Tata. Many decades ago, I think she's in her 70s now, many decades ago as a 19-year-old had a diving accident that left her as a quadriplegic. So for the rest of her life, no functional use of her hands and legs. And she has just had a tremendous testimony of trusting the Lord and she's written songs, she's spoken about how her wheelchair, her lowly state as a human being, being virtually unproductive her whole life in a culture that values production above all else, right? She is dependent and needy and broken and in pain constantly. And she has been such a testimony of God's grace and all of that, such a, of, of how upside down this is. She should be a miserable Christian and she rejoices. She's glorious. And she, she tells this story in one of her books that she says, I know this isn't theologically accurate, but when I get to heaven and meet my Savior and I'm in my fully restored body, I hope I get to take my wheelchair with me. And what she says is, I'll look my Savior in the eyes and I'll say, thank you for that device. Because in that device, in my loneliness, in my weakness, in my pain, I had to look to you every moment of the day. And I knew things of your grace and your provision that I never would have known had you not put me in that chair. So thank you genuinely, Jesus, for that thing. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to cast it into hell. And what a sweet, what a sweet illustration, living illustration of someone who exalts in their lowly position. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness having its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Experiencing physical lack, and therefore needing to go to God in your lack, and your wis- needing wisdom, you find God to be sufficient. Not just in physical things, but spiritual things. His low position actually causes him to lean more into his spiritual position. And he can exalt in that. It's not going to be hard to give up this world for heaven because he doesn't have this much world to give up. Like It's a pretty easy trade, right? So in a sense, the lowly person may have some advantages spiritually that he himself should exalt in and should not let anyone look down on him for. Let's turn to Ephesians 1 for just a moment. I think this will be on the screen, but you can look there as well. But just to think a little bit about what this means to be in an exalted position. This position that we have in Christ, that regardless of where you rank, no matter how little you have physically, no matter how, much, how little you are socially, economically, materially, look at the position that you can glory in in Christ. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just notice how many times the word in Christ or in Him comes up who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for the adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, the spiritual riches that are available to everybody, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Here, blessings, riches, inheritance, and none of that has to do at all with what you possess in this world, what's standing at all. And the lowly person is able to maybe see that more clearly because he's just not obstructed by the world systems. He's at the bottom of the food chain. So he's got nowhere to go but look up. And when he looks up, he sees his Savior and the riches that are in front of him, the riches that he already possesses in Christ. So the call here is for the, for the gospel to take root in the heart of those who struggle financially and to rejoice in how exalted you are in Christ and how rich you really are spiritually and what an advantage you have actually in the lowliness. Hard truth to grab, but such a a glorious one when it grips the heart. Verses 10 and 11, there's more that's said to the rich. The lowliness of the rich is how the gospel has caused us to think about the lowliness of the rich. It says, and the rich in his humiliation. The idea there is going back to the word boast. The lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, carry the word boast over, and the rich boast in his humiliation. Here's the because. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. It's so fleeting. The sun rises with its scorching heat. We felt that this summer. I watered my grass like crazy, and it is dead, dead, dead today. I could not keep up with the scorching heat. So also is the rich man in his possessions. It withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits, like while he's doing it. So there's more said to the rich here because I think this is, this, is, this is the more challenging thing to grab onto. So much of our culture, so much of our flesh wants more, wants more things. We really do believe that we would be happier and better off with more things. The gospel kind of flips that and says actually there's a humiliation that we should feel in the rich, humble. So I think there's three things that the rich person is supposed to... Three ways to think of this humiliation. One, the rich person realizes his comparatively low state compared to God. His comparatively low state before God. He may be in charge of a lot of things in this world and may have God-like power over certain people and to not let that go to his head. To go, hey, compared to to God, I am lowly, I am small. So when the gospel grips the heart of someone who has a lot of influence and power and resources... The gospel grips him and he realizes just how small he really is in this little tiny blue marble hurtling through space, living in such a small time, the power just doesn't go to his head because God is so much greater than him. This word humiliation is sort of an interesting word. It's used in Philippians 3, I think I have this up here, Philippians 3, 20 through 21 to speak of our lowly bodies. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies and be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even so 
even to subject all things to himself. So the idea being is that the rich person sees himself as like, his riches are so lowly and insignificant compared to the spiritual riches that one can have in Christ, right? So just as there is a connection between our lowly, broken, diseased, dysfunctional bodies, balding head bodies in this world compared to the glorious, luscious locks of hair we'll have in heaven, our, our glorious bodies. Okay, that was a joke. Um, but that's the idea, the, this idea of humiliation compared to God, a lowly state compared to God. Secondly, I think that the humiliation that he's supposed to glory in is realizing his inability to gain spiritual standing by money. You can't buy your way into the kingdom. In fact, when Jesus is in the temple and all of these people are doing these big shows of all the money they're giving in the offering, right? He points out to his disciples, look at the little widow over there who put two pennies in. It was all she had. Jesus is not impressed at all with the spiritual lives of those who are putting lots of money in. He's looking straight to the heart and goes, oh, I actually see what's really going on here. That's not really for show. This is what's really in the heart. So his inability to gain spiritual standing by money. Listen to this. This is a pretty ominous warning for, uh, for all of us, really. 1 Timothy 6, 9-11 through says, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, he could just leave it as, hey, they fall into temptation, but he, feel, he wants us to feel the weight of this, so he piles up, Right? They don't just fall into temptation, but into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Like, could he be more dramatic about the dangers of wanting more? For the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, just think about that. We're Christians. This is the Bible. When we think of pierced, what do we think of? We think of crucifixion, right? We think of our Savior. He's drawing on that imagery of like, they crucify their souls in pursuit of money. Like their pursuit of money is crucifying their spiritual life. They are dying on the riches of their desire. They are dying on the cross of their desire for riches. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So the person who has resources, position, power, respect in this world, who's rich, understands this verse, that there are a whole lot of snares that lay out in front of him that he has to be careful of that will devastate him. And he's going to have to be very deliberate to step around those things to pursue righteousness, godliness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. I think the third thing, so his comparatively low state compared to God, his inability to gain spiritual standing by money, and third, the temporary nature of his standing. Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So when the gospel has gripped the heart, there's this humbleness that comes to the heart that goes, so much of what I have is not going with me. Like, you go to a funeral, and we really don't talk a lot about their net worth, right? 
We talk about their relationships. We talk about their character. And there's sometimes you have like people that really have to work hard to find some character in this person, <laughs> right? And that's such a sad thing when you're like, everybody's lying. This person pursued money and prestige at the cost of everyone, and no one cares about that, and we're just trying to find something nice to say at a funeral. Then you sometimes go to the funeral of the person who has nothing, but they prayed, and they served, and they gave. Their name won't be in the paper. Nobody has their name on a list of the biggest donors that ever came, but you have a bunch of people who have been transformed that are grateful that this person lived, right? Like you just, it's all so temporary, I think of Kobe Bryant, one of the most famous basketball players, played for the Lakers, made millions of dollars, won five championships, just on every level successful. And he decided he was so busy doing different things, some of them, you know, good kind of social things, and he's got his family members that he's trying to connect with, and he's got basketball practices and all these things, even after he retired. So many ventures, so much wealth and prestige, so many things to manage that he decided to go ahead and purchase a helicopter and hire a full-time pilot to just get him to places quicker, to get to his kids' games quicker, to get to all these things. And so he used his wealth to try to leverage so that he might be able to more effectively manage it. It was a good idea, good thing. Well, on January 26, 2020, he and his daughter died when that helicopter crashed into the side of the hill. In the midst of his pursuits, he's gone. He's gone, Right? Using his riches to maximize his effectiveness, really good, that's commendable. And at the same time, without those riches, he wouldn't be in a helicopter crash. He died in the midst of his pursuits, just over, gone. He and his daughter, just gone. And that's what the gospel reminds us of. It's the brevity of life, the fact that, man, I may be pouring so much of myself into things that could be gone in an instant. could just be over in the midst of my pursuits. Jesus tells a parable about a man who gains more and more in wealth, builds big and bigger barns, and then he goes, relax, my soul, you've taken care of yourself for many years. And Jesus says, you, God says, you fool. And he dies that very night. He goes, all of your stuff is just going to go to someone else. It's just going to be auctioned off, and most of it's going to be in a landfill in 100 years. right? And so the rich understands this. Like The gospel just gives this perspective that brings a real humility to those that are rich. The aim here is not to bash the rich and to privilege the poor. It's not that money is evil in and of itself, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And it lies to us about what matters most. So when the gospel grips the heart, the lies of riches no longer have their hold on us. If we go back to verse 1 of James... It's like the rich person should really lean into the servant part of that word, that I'm ultimately a servant, even as the CEO of this company, even as the leader of this organization. I am ultimately, fundamentally, as James says in verse 1, a servant. I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm going to give an account. None of this is mine. This is all a stewardship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He realizes that he has a master. In verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces trials. I think the rich person might recognize that he probably has fewer opportunities to mature than the poor person. So the rich person actually looks with somewhat of envy and honor on the, the poor person because I actually, because of my money, don't face that many trials. Therefore, I might not be growing as much as I would if I had less, right? There might, I might need a lowly person in my life to give me counsel, on how to be godly. 
right? Can you imagine the CEO of the company grabbing lunch with the janitor because the janitor is just frankly godlier than him? And there's something about your position and your struggle that needs to inform mine, right? You're growing more spiritually because you actually have to lean on the Lord more, even for your daily needs, your daily bread, than I do. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Our position in Christ as a servant, as a child of Christ, humbles us. So the Bible's not anti-money, but it is anti-love of money. And it's not pro-poverty, but it is pro-humility for all of us. So, here we go. we got these two categories, poor and rich. James is going to talk about this a lot throughout the rest of his book, about how those two can honor each other, strengthen each other. That's going to happen in chapter 2 and chapter 5 of, uh, of some of the warnings to both sides of that equation, how, what that looks like in church gatherings. And so I just want to, it might be helpful for us to just think about which category are we in. So I've got kind of a fun little website here. How rich am I? You can go back just a second just so they can see that. So which category are we? Which one is more applicable to you where you sit today, verse 8 or verses 9 and 10? Now, we all can think of people richer than us, so we're all like, I'm probably, I'm probably the verse 8 guy, right? But I just want to give us a little bit of perspective of sort of where we rank kind of globally, how rich am I? And so if you want to go to the next page here, this is just some screenshots from the website. So let's just imagine that you're a college student, you're working part-time. Let's say you make 1000 bucks a month. You make about $12,000 a year. So you would be in the top 17.5% of the global population. You're doing well. You're doing really well globally. So this web website will take into account sort of the economics of the countries. It's pretty amazing what they've got in here. So that's where you would rank. So you would clearly, if you've got a part-time job making 1000 bucks a month, you are rich. You're in the richest 17.5% of the world. So verses 8 and 9 apply to you. Right? You would be on the rich side of this equation. So that's, let's, uh, let's just take another category. Let's say that you're a family of five, two adults, three kids. Let's say you have pretty middle class income of $65,000 a year. You're in the top 10% of the richest people in the world. Wow. You're way up there. Let's say you're a, you're a married couple. You're one of those dinks, dual income, no kids, right? Married couple, two good jobs, no kids. You've you got a lot going on here. Let's say that you, between your two jobs, some side hustles that you have going on, you make $100,000 a year. And you're in the top 1% of humans on the earth in terms of money. So just kind of, we might be in different standings within this room, but in terms of like, the world and human history, we are some of the richest people that have ever walked the earth. The fact that, uh, that many of us have multiple changes of clothes, some of us have multiple vehicles, that's mind-blowing. Some of you have one of these, cell phones. If you went back 100 years, you would be like a god with what you could do with this, right? You have all of the knowledge of human history at your fingertips within seconds. You can communicate around the world. You can capture a moment in time and then at a different moment of time play back that same picture or video. Can you just imagine in world history where you would rank in terms of power and prestige and respect? We, I think, need to take heed particularly to verses 9 and 10 or 10 and 11 um, because in the grand scheme of things, we are definitely in the rich category. So we need to lead the way. The call to us is to be humble.
So glory in our humility and realize just how temporary these chairs are, how temporary our clothes are, how temporary our jobs are. So how do we do that? How do we have both this exalting in our high position in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, and this humility about where we are in relationship to Christ? I would give three suggestions here. A true view of yourself, exalted and humiliated at the same time, is found in Jesus Christ. I would say that we need to find ourselves in Christ. In Christ. I think that cuts away. I think that reorients our view of ourselves and our money, how we relate to each other. So I think we need to find ourselves in Christ's teaching. Finding ourselves in Christ's teaching. Let's just hear what, what Jesus has to say from the Sermon on the Mount. We just looked at this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Punchline, you cannot serve God and money. So we need to find ourselves in Jesus' teaching and heed his teaching, obey his teaching. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 12. This is a little longer section, but it's all related to the same theme. He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. I just told this story. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger, larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Lay up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The very opposite of glorying in your, your humiliation, right? But God said to him, fool, you do not want to hear that from God. Right? Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said this to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If you then are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory is not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So true view of yourself is found in finding yourself in Jesus' teaching. Secondly, find yourself in Christ's work. Think of this connection between rich and poor in the work of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9-11, through 11, 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. He's calling them to generosity. And he roots that in the fact that if you have found yourself in Christ, Christ gave up his rich and exalted position in heaven. He came and lived a life of poverty. He died under false pretenses, a death he did not deserve on the cross. And he rose again to glory so that he might take you with him. That he might make you rich because you're the one in spiritual poverty. And he took your poverty on himself so that he could give his riches to you. Find yourself in Christ. And you realize how temporary your riches are, how much they lie to you. And if you're poor, you realize that that doesn't define me. I've been given the riches of Christ. He became poor for me so that I might be rich with him. So find yourself in his work. Turn from your sin and trusting in yourself and trusting in your possessions. And put your trust in Christ. Put your trust in him and what he has done for you. Thirdly, find yourself in his example. Listen to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And again, think about this rich, poor dynamic. He said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count, yourself, count others more significant than yourself. That's the command of the rich, right? To humility, for sure. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, Follow the example of Christ. Think the same way he did. Now listen to what he did. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're called, commanded, to follow the example of Jesus. So this happens. This happens. This ability, this call, this command that James gives us to let the lowly brother exalt in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because the, the only way that we can do that is if we find ourselves in Christ. We view ourselves in Christ. We find ourselves in his teaching and we obey them. We find ourselves in his work and identify with that, that he purchased me. And then we live out the same character. We live as he would have us live in the world, following his example. Let me conclude. If you are in Christ, then here's a few things that we can draw from this. One, if you're in Christ, then your circumstances no longer define how you view yourself. You don't get to do that anymore. You're commanded to view yourself according to the gospel not according to the world. If you're in Christ, then the world's value system no longer defines your view of yourself. If you are in Christ, then the rich and poor around you no longer define how you view yourself. You have no authority to define how you view yourself. You now are in Christ. You're exalted and humble at the same time. God alone, by the gospel, through His Word, defines how you are to view yourself. 
And God expects the church to have all kinds of people, rich and poor, right? He's writing to people who are going to be in both categories, and they have to somehow follow Jesus together. He expects the church not to be of just middle-class people, a church not just with poor people, not just with rich people, because the gospel reconciles and brings together all kinds of different people who have all kinds of different temptations and struggles, and they need each other. They need each other. God expects the church to have all kinds of people helping one another view themselves and one another as fundamentally in Christ. So I hope that people that come in here, that maybe don't have the nicest clothes, maybe they're homeless, they're walking in, and they can have their heads held high because if they're trusting in Christ, they have much to boast about. And that maybe one of the richest people that has ever lived walks through this through the doors and conducts himself with great humility. I'm just another sinner saved by grace at the foot of the cross right? That's when the gospel has gripped a people, is we're now viewing and relating to each other, not based on what we look like, how much we have, what we can, what we have to offer materially to each other, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, made in God's image, being brought together and being remade together, and with great compassion, knowing that you have, you have advantages spiritually that I need to learn from, and I have challenges that I need your help on, right? That we all come in with a lot of humility and a lot of confidence because of what Christ has done for us. The very next verse, which Scott will take you through next week, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Poverty is a trial and prosperity is a trial. Both of those are trials. And when he has stood the test, whatever test the Lord might give him, whatever trials the Lord sees fit to give them, if he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. One Jewish scholar says this, there is no man whom God does not try. He tries the rich to see if they will open their hands. And he tries the poor to see if they will receive the affliction and not complain. Ligon Duncan says this, you see, as talking about the trial of poverty and wealth, now everybody is lining up on the side of give me the trial of wealth. I think I could handle that one, right? But James says you want to see both of these as worldly imposters, poverty and wealth for what they are. They're trials meant to make us godly, to trust in Him, to lean into each other. Jeremiah 9, this is what I'll close. I'll close with this word right here. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's true riches. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's bow our heads, just take a moment, and however this text is laying, landing on your heart, I pray that you would just ask the Lord to help you. And wherever the challenge might be, I don't, I don't know. I don't know specifically, each of you, what the Lord might need you to do or call you to do, but I just pray. Just take a moment to pray. God, Lord, what would you have me do? Help me to find myself, see myself in you, first and foremost. And then out of that, what would you have me do? How would you have me relate? What work do you need to do in my heart? So I'll just give you a moment to do business with God. Oh God, would you help those of us that are in a lowly state, 
maybe our health, maybe our finances. This text speaks to finances, but I think would be applying to many places where we might feel lowly, feel behind, feel demeaned or weak. God, help us to turn those pains and pressures that we feel. Help us to drive, help those things to drive us deeper into our our riches in you, our identity in Christ, and what's really ultimately permanently true of us. And Lord, I pray that in those trials, in those lowly times, that we would exalt publicly, that people would see that Jesus is greater and sweeter than having anything else in this world. Lord, for those of us that might be in the rich side of things, we don't have a lot of needs, things are going well, we have what we need, we have more than we need. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to recognize the temporary nature that a diagnosis, financial disaster, a car wreck could wipe all of it away by the end of today. So Lord, help us to be humble and grateful and to steward it well while we have it. Lord, help us to use the pressures and the temptations that come from the trial of having things. Help us flip those and use those for spiritual purposes. Help every trial, whether in poverty or prosperity, be used of you to strengthen our spiritual lives. Where more money would help us spiritually, less money also would help us spiritually because you're working all things for our good. So Lord, we ask for you to do that. We can't do that in and of ourselves and we have a culture around us that works against us. So Lord, we pray that you would transform our hearts, help us to see with spiritual eyes, help us to see ourselves rightly and each other rightly and help it to be very clear that it's the gospel that we glory in that we boast in. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.